Okay, in this session we're going to talk about blended families. In other words, these are cases where you will find people identified as Native American and some of the members of the family were African American. Some of the members of the family were European Americans. The families had blended. They were racially blended families. And as I define, and this is my definition, blended families within one household or one family group is a group of individuals where members are from different cultures, different backgrounds, different traditions, but they live together in one family unit. In the context of Native American genealogy, there are two what I call basic categories. There are intertribal families, intertribal families where maybe one member of the family is Cherokee, another member of the family is Choctaw, or another member is Creek, or one member of the family is Wampanoag and the other one is Pequot. That's an intertribal. People maybe from one tribe marry people from another. Biracial families, of course, or uh, interracial families, where a situation that parents, one parent comes from a race that's different from that of the spouse. That can happen. And of course, in this particular image, you see a family that is a blended family. The lady seated is the matriarch of the family, spoke no English, was Choctaw. Her daughter standing behind her, we see her standing there. Probably at first glance, one might even think that she's of African ancestry. Then one sees her daughter to our left, a little bit fairer in complexion. And of course, we see now the great-grandchildren who very much appear to be Caucasian children, all who descend from that same woman, the matriarch of the family, who is seated. In the focus of this particular session, we are going to look at families where some of them, there is a biracial component of that family, there's a bicultural structure in that household, and there are some records that reflect this. Now, we're going to look at the process of finding the right records. The level of difficulty, the good news is that it's not exceedingly difficult. The limitations in the process and avoiding what I call those pitfalls. Reviewing, once again, yes, oral history. You've got to ask the questions. And the most important thing about conducting oral history is that you want to interview a person more than one time. Go back and talk to them again. If you've ever read um, the, actually it's a very good book, um, that uh, uh, the chapter that Tony Burroughs wrote in his book, Black Roots, he talks about the value of talking to a person more than one time. So you want to talk certainly to your elders more than one time. Utilize those family artifacts. A lady was just sharing with me some beautiful uh, land records from her family. And uh, these records can be very, very enlightening to find. The vital records, I've already mentioned those, those both birth, marriage, and death records. And military records can be extremely useful before you get to those specialized Indian records. Some are going to be reflective of Indian and white families. Some are going to reflect Indian and black families. And some you're going to find where the history of the entire group is embedded in the history of another group. And of course, you know 
that one census year is different from another census year. You know that already. Well, this can also happen geographically in terms of what you find in a census record. It can actually look quite different as well. And they're not hidden from the public. These records are in the public domain. I use them all the time. I'm sure two-thirds of the people use them all the time as well. So, of course, you want to look at all the records. And when you get back, even as early as the middle 1800s, 1870s, and most people know what this is. This is a census record. This is a typical census record as opposed to the 1910 or 1900. This is 50 different people who are enumerated on this record. Well, the federal census in particular, standard records, which have the 50 people per page, you're going to find them typically on... 1940, 30, 20, 1910, 1900. You know, we have that 20-year gap since 1890 is missing, and 1870 and 60. They're all the special records that Ancestry has, and Fold 3 also has, um, that 1880 to 1945 group of records. And, of course, there is the 1900 and 1910 records that you also have, that bottom half that always has special questions pertaining to Indians. You want to pay attention. Now, how many of you have had an experience looking at a family and you find, let's say, great-grandpa lived from 1850-something and didn't die until 1935. So you find him in one year, 1870, 1880, um, 1900, 1910, 1920, 1930. There are six different census years that you're going to find him. And you notice one year he's listed as black, another year he's listed as mulatto. By 1940 he's listed as negro. He didn't live in 1940. 1930 he's listed as negro or colored. You can find that variation. And individuals can be listed from one census year to another. When you're looking at census records in particular, you want to realize that you're going to see different categories. You're going to find Indian communities, meaning the entire community in, on that page is an Indian community. You're going to find what I call mixed communities. A mixed community is one in which it's basically a non-Indian community, but you find a few people who are Indian who are on that census page. And then you have some where even in the household you find people of different backgrounds. So let's take a look at some Indian communities. This is, by the way, a record from the 1870s. This is the 1870 census. And on this record, remember, um, in 1870, you always have the 50 people, 50 different individuals. And so we're going to take a look at what some of these different records look like. So we're going to look at Suffolk County, New York. And does anybody know New York's geography? What, where is Suffolk County? Long Island. Long Island, exactly. This is the community in Brookhaven on Long Island. And as you see, going down the page, zooming in, everybody listed on this portion is the race, race category was column number six, and you'll see that everybody there is listed with IN, which is the abbreviation that was used for Indian. You also take a look and you see something on the side. You see the word reservation there. So I rotated the document, and you can see the notation is indicating that these are all Indians living upon a reservation 
on Long Island. Very interesting. Now, I mentioned a mixed community. A mixed community is one in which most of the people on the page are non-Indian. They're either all white or all black or white and black, but there may be an Indian or two on the page. This is a mixed community. In particular, we see a white family that's enumerated here, and then we see an Indian in the household, Jesse Jones, and then we see two members of the household who are black in the same household. So in this case, well, that is an example actually of a mixed family as well of the fact that it's also a mixed community. But what's interesting on this particular one in that mixed family, they're appearing on a non-Indian community. Notice that there's a little, I put a little arrow there. I know you can't read it clearly, so I'll blow it up for you. It says one male Indian on that page counted as colored. Now what in the world does that mean? Okay, well, what it means, look right above that line. You know, at the bottom of the 1870 census, it asks for a tally. What's the number of people? How many dwellings are there on the page? How many white males? How many white females? How many colored males? You see one, and it must be this one who is counted as colored. And they're two colored females. So, interest, and of course they put it there because there is no category for Indians on the page. Okay, well, we know it's not white, so we're going to count them as colored, so nothing else. And so the numerator just wanted it to be clear that, um, okay, well, we know Jesse's not white, and we're going to write him down, so we'll count them as colored. So again, here we're looking at Jesse and Mary and Jenny. And this was, by the way, in Tennessee, just to give you an idea. This is not Oklahoma. This, is, uh, this was Giles County, Tennessee. But let's go to Virginia. I know a lot of Virginia people in here. King William County, Virginia. And in this particular image, you'll find, I know it's not clear, apologize for that, but this entire column, column six, everybody in that entire community is enumerated as Indian. One thing that is important to note, there's no particular pattern, uh, because I'm going to show you in a second how census enumerations can vary even in the same census year. And sometimes you'll find an individual identified as Indian in the records. Maybe 10 years later, they're identified differently in some other kind of way. Now, remember Jesse? Okay, that's 1870. Here is Jesse. Jenny's gotten married and moved out. And we see now that they were husband and wife, and now they're enumerated as black. Same family. They haven't moved. They're the same people. But here's an interesting case I want you to look at. Now, I'm staying right now. This is still 1870, same census year. Look at this, and I think this would be a challenge. What if you've done everything right? You followed all the rules. Oh, I started with, your, started with myself, and I went back, and I got the vital records, and I went back census year by census year, and you get all the way to, and your family's from Lake Charles, Louisiana. And you get back to 1870, and let's say your ancestor's name was Henry Baptiste. But Baptiste is a pretty common name in Louisiana. So 
you get back, you don't know if this is Henry or John or, uh, you know, Boudreaux, okay? You don't know. So you get back to Lake Charles and you see Baptiste. And you see this entire column right here says that these are Indians. Okay. Well, Baptiste, who had a daughter and a boy and a boy and a boy. You don't even know their names. Was your Baptiste ancestor maybe the son of this guy? You don't know. There's no answer to that. But let's look next door. We see her. Jacob Williams was there. Oh, he had a wife called Lucy. And then he had a daughter and four more daughters. The census taker never wrote their name down. And it's a real challenge. I mean, you can't change what that record says. But that's one of those things that's just going to be a real problem. But let's look at the same record. Look at the top, as opposed to saying, okay, these are folks who lived in Lake, Lake Charles, and um, okay, they were in such and such, a count, such and such a town in the county, where they're called parishes in Louisiana. He just said, ah, look, they're just Indians. He wrote Indians at the top, didn't bother to find out what community this is in. And then there's a place where they list their place of birth. He just said, oh, what tribes they're from, I don't care. Okay, so we know Baptiste was called Alabama, or Alabama, that's an Indian word, and uh, Jacob Williams was Cushada, okay, but he's just writing down the tribes. He really doesn't care where they were born, which makes me ask the question, did he really talk to them, or did he just say, hey, who lives over there in that village? Oh, Baptiste, can't remember his name, he has four kids. Uh, Oh, yeah, Jacob and Lucy, oh, yeah, they have, you know, some children, too. I doubt if the enumerator spoke to them. And you don't see Indian names being used. You're seeing Europeanized names, so it wouldn't have been that hard. But he didn't talk to them. And so you wonder, well, what in the world is going on? Examine the record thoroughly. Where did they live? Well, if you pay attention to this one column in the middle, and I had to break it up to be able to get it all on the full screen, But he just says, uh, well, these are families living at the junction, no, living at the Indian village on the east bank of the Kalisco River, above Thompson's Bluff, and following the occupation of hunters and farmers at Prairie Talibo. Where the heck did they live? Who knows. Now, the enumerator probably thought he was being fairly thorough. I mean, he's telling you they live somewhere east above Thompson's Bluff on Prairie Talibo, but did he really document it thoroughly? I pull up a map of Louisiana. All of that is the Kalisco River. And of course, one of the things you know as a genealogist Besides records, maps are also tools for you. So you want to, you have to study geography. You have, uh, genealogy is one of those disciplines that crosses other disciplines. History has to be incorporated, but so does geography. So does cartography. Because I suspect that a very rare record, a rare map, might actually show you where Thompson's Bluff was 
and where Prairie Talibo is. And I have looked. I still haven't found Prairie Talibo. But I do know that Lake Charles, Louisiana is kind of in this area because the river does pour into the Gulf. But again, a person who's researching, whose ancestor comes from that area, you want to find the maps any kind of way that you can. You want to communicate with other researchers and ask them if they have any good local maps, especially if you think you might be related to poor Baptiste and his boy and girl and girl and girl. So, um, yeah, this can be a challenge, most definitely. Now, 20th century is interesting the way many Indian families were documented. I mentioned the standard records and the special census. Standard record, always the 50 per page, and lots of good information about the individuals. Special Indian census records, 25 per page, information at the top, and additional information about the same people at the bottom. And one of the most important things to do when you're using census, always become familiar with the instructions that the enumerator used. With special Indian census, you've got the instructions right on the right. With the standard census schedules, oh, I don't know, about every 20 pages or so, maybe a little bit more, you'll find the instructions. However, as I say, Google is your friend. Just Google on google.com instructions for census enumerators, and you'll be able to pop up the appropriate document for the appropriate census year. Now, I've mentioned those two census years, 1910 and 1900. This is what they actually ask for on the bottom of that page. You'll see those three columns there, a few other columns, and some other data on the side. This is what the 1910 census asked for. It asked for the tribe of this Indian, which is listed in this column, the tribe of the father, the tribe of the mother, proportion of Indian and other blood, Indian, white, and Negro. Number of times married, whether the person's living in polygamy. And if they're living in polygamy, are the wives' sisters? I find that such an interesting question. I wish the standard census records had a column like this. Graduated from what educational institution? I just wish this had been a question on the regular census schedule. And then they ask other questions in terms of whether they're living in a movable uh, dwelling or, as they say, a civilized dwelling, which is very interesting, or aboriginal dwelling. Anyway, it's something that is interesting to see. 1910 was kind of different. They do ask on the bottom half of that page. They'll ask for if there's any other name, like an Indian name the person had. They ask for that information in the first column. They ask for the tribe of the person, the tribe of the father, the tribe of the mother. And they ask about the mixed blood ancestry, except the questions asked differently. They'll say, on that record, has this Indian any white blood? If so, how much? That's all that was asked on that particular year. Then, of course, they ask also in terms of whether the person's living in polygamy, if the person is taxed or not, and if they had acquired a land allotment, and 
are they living in a fixed or a movable dwelling? They didn't call it civilized dwelling on that particular census year. But that's what is asked on the bottom half of that census record. But let's take a look at some of them. They're very interesting. Sam and Sally Walton were my great-grandparents. And they appeared in the 1900 census in the Choctaw Nation, and they were enumerated as a black family. They appeared on the regular census schedule. And you'll see Sam, Sally, Houston, Sam, and Joseph Hunt, who is my um, uh, great-grandmother's brother. And everybody is listed as black. Ten years later, Uncle Joe had moved out. Uncle Houston had died, so there are only three people in the household. Same family now appears on the special Indian census. At the top of the page, you see Sam, Sally, and Sam Jr. They appear on the special Indian population census, so that means lines one, two, and three at the top contain more data about them on lines one, two, and three at the bottom. And it's interesting to see, I'll say how creative the mathematicians were. You'll see Sam and Sally and Sam again. And you see them all enumerated as Indian. And you also see some interesting things. You see they wrote some things and drew some lines through it and changed it and wrote something else. Well, lines one, two, and three pertain to this family. And you'll see, well, for a tribe of this Indian, first they wrote Cherokee, then they wrote Negro male or Negro M period behind it. Then it says, well, his father was Cherokee. His mother is Negro. Well, so he's one half Indian, one half Negro. Then Sally, his wife, my great-grandmother, she's Choctaw, and they wrote, I don't know why they put Negro M there, but they did. Then they said her father's Choctaw, her mother's Negro. She's suddenly one quarter Indian and three quarters black. And then poor Grandpa Sam, he ends up being three eighths Indian, five eighths, um, you know, a Negro, which is kind of fascinating. And it gets to be pretty bizarre. Uh, who is this person down here at the bottom? Here's someone who is 1 16th Indian and 15 16th black. You don't stress over it, but you do pay attention to what was written down, and you tell that in the family story. But it's interesting, and the most important thing is that it's just the opinion of the census taker. It's not, there was no DNA, blood plasma hadn't been discovered by Dr. Charles Drew. This is just some guy with a book coming to the house, hmm, let's see what you look like, and wrote something down. This is nothing scientific. I mean, it's just an opinion. And you see this throughout multiple communities. This census was done throughout the country. This is 1910. Let's look at a census that was conducted in New York. You'll see in this particular document in Suffolk County on the bottom half of the page, you see everybody in that, on that particular page anyway. Everyone is listed as one half Indian and one half Negro. Everybody. So, except you don't find large numbers of the all-black family that they would have come from and the large Indian family to make everyone one half 
because there should be some people older than who would have been the parents of all of the people who were half Negro and parents. So you realize, hmm, it's just the opinion of the census taker. Let's look at the Seneca Nation, upstate New York. Same census year, this entire community is listed as basically an Indian community, and everyone there is listed as full blood. Really? Were they? They may have been, but what was the evidence of that? It's the opinion of the census taker. Charles City, Virginia, for Virginia people. This is a very interesting community to take a look at. I'm going to zoom in a little bit. Here's a group of people from the Harrison District of Charles City, Virginia. A lot of folks from the Atkins uh, family. Everybody is identified here as being Indian. Everyone is listed as Chickahominy Indian. And this appears to be a triracial community. You'll see that some people are, are um, what percentage? Let's just start at the top. Here's a person who was one half Indian, one half white. Here's a person who is, it looks as if it's two-thirds Indian, and I guess that's one-third Negro. How do you be a third? I'm not sure how that works. Um, but you also see some other things that are there. You see, look at the guy at the bottom who's supposedly one-half, and that also looks like one-half. Well, two-halves make a whole, right? But then there's some other calculation of one-sixteenth. You know, it's there. It's interesting to see. It's clearly not scientific, and that's something just to realize. This census you will find in communities in Connecticut, Florida, Kansas, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Mississippi, Missouri, New York, New Jersey, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and the Carolinas, and some territories in the West. So it is important to realize multiple states produce this, you know, that Maryland is not there. So this is an interesting family, and I'm not quite sure other than the fact that it's interesting. A family in Missouri, 1910. This is fascinating because this was a regular census page, not the special Indian census. You see the, see the Fillmore family here. But I was very intrigued, and I'm not quite sure what to make of it other than that's how they were identified. You see Robert Fillmore, who's the head of the household. His wife was Minnehaha. How many have heard that name? Song of Hiawatha, by the shores of Gitchikuma, Hiawatha. Well, Minnehaha's in that poem. Uh, he has a son called Robert and has a son called Powhatan, which is most interesting. It's a Virginia name. Osceola is another son. That's a name from Seminoles. And then uh, we see Juanita, who's there. Now, we also see back up 10 years, we see the same people in the family. We even see Pocahontas in the family. She's another daughter there. So Pocahontas was a member of the family. Um, I guess I was intrigued by it because... In families where there are traditional Indian names, I've rarely seen any tribe of individuals borrow names from other cultures to name their children. So when I see Powhatan and Pocahontas, okay, Pocahontas was the daughter of Powhatan, but 
but they had no relationship with Osceola in Florida. And so I'm not quite sure what to make of that, other than the fact that it is interesting. In the 1920 census, they're still there, okay. Minnehaha is now known as Minnie. And um, suddenly, if you notice, uh, let's see here. Okay, that's the um, racial category that's there. We see um, Jenny, who I don't remember before. Osceola's there, and Pocahontas is now in her 20s now. By the 1930s, suddenly, um, almost all of them except for Powhatan. Now Powhatan's gotten married, and everybody's white in the family, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. So... Uh, it's just interesting. I just thought I would share that with you. The point being, though, that sometimes uh, a person's designation may change depending upon the community in which they live, uh, how familiar the enumerator was with that family, and um, just any number of other factors. And it may or may not prove what one is hoping to prove. So it's always uh, something to be aware of. But of course, after you've exhausted all these records and the federal records and the census and all of these wonderful things, you're now ready to go and look at the specialized Indian records. Now, I will point out military. You do find people on military records also identified as being Indian. Here's one from Oktahaw, Oklahoma, and I can tell by his name is Grayson, so I know this person is more than likely Creek. That's a very strong name in Creek country. And um, under the racial category, you see there he is identified as Indian. Notice, however, he was put, this is the first draft. You know, there were three drafts. He was on the first draft. That's the one where they snip off the corner if you're African-American. So he was probably a little darker. And so it was decided, oh, yeah, okay, they snipped it off in the lower left-hand corner. Only that first draft of 1917 actually required that corner to be snipped. But he's on that kind of card, which is kind of interesting as well. Um, but when we're talking about Eastern records, I've talked about the Guion Miller records, and there is a role, the Miller role, uh, of it is pertaining to Eastern Cherokee, and for every role, there is an application file. And um, Fold 3 does have these applications digitized, so if you can get a chance to go and take a look at them. Dawes records, Oklahoma only. And I've had people, I was contacted about a year ago, a lady wrote me from Wisconsin, and she was so excited. She was like, I haven't been able to sleep. I'm just so excited. I just found an ancestor on the Dawes Rolls. So, and her next question made me kind of back up and say, really? So I asked her another question. Her next question was, so what can I do to see that my children will get some benefits? When I heard that question, I realized, hmm, tell me about your family. Where did they live? And she proceeded to tell me about her family in Tennessee. It was a name that matched a name from her family, but it was not her ancestor. And the name that she was looking at, I said, well, when did they live? And she told me when they lived in whatever part of Tennessee that it was. I found them on the census. Oh, are these members of the family? Yes, that's them. And I said, okay. But the family from the Dawes Roll with the Henry Tompkins or um, 
I'm just using that name as an example. And your Henry Tompkins was a grown man in 1900. Mm -hmm. And this child, Henry Tompkins, on the Dawes Roll was a two-year-old mm -hmm. in 1900. Mm -hmm. And she was just so heart <laughs> heartbroken mm -hmm. because she had jumped into an Indian record without doing her basic genealogy because she was looking to prove and that could happen. And, you know, that could throw you into, you know, can derail your research. So after you've exhausted census records, then you're ready to look at some of those. The publication that I have out on the table can assist you. And realize, of course, Cherokee Nation, it's huge, it's huge. And there are all kinds of records and roles, and the most useful of which will either be um, probably the Dawes Roll, and if they are Cherokee Freedmen, then the Wallace Roll would be useful as well as the Kern Clifton Roll. But, uh, and there are all other kinds of roles throughout the years. But until you identify your person as being a member of the Cherokee Nation, these other roles will not be of assistance. You don't grab the roll and hope to find the name. You want to go step by step. Also, um, Cherokee roles, some of those roles that I had mentioned, uh, they have been transcribed. Uh, Bob Blankenship has written some books, and he has actually transcribed them very well. And you can look at those, but you don't look at them until you're ready to look at them. So it's very important. The Guion Miller Index is digitized online on the National Archives site, so archives.gov. And this is a page, just looking at a page of this index. And it's very interesting. I don't know if you can see very well. This is the state from which the different applications came. Remember, they're applying for that one-time $133 payment, and they're applying from all over. And just to give you an idea, I see applications from Georgia, Oklahoma Territory, Indian Territory, um, get the state. Tennessee, quite a few from Tennessee right there. Uh, more from Indian Territory, Tennessee, Texas, Georgia, more from Georgia, Arkansas, even one from Virginia. Uh, Virginia again, Missouri, literally all over the country. West Virginia, Florida. So the point being that it might be useful to look at the Guion Miller role and, uh, from, because you had applicants from multiple states. And they did provide <coughs> excuse me, good genealogical data, so it's good to certainly look at it. 345 pages of the index alone. That's a lot of people. Over 90,000 people are there. And you can get it from archives.gov, and it can be quite useful. The Dawes Roll itself, indexed to the final roles of citizens and freedmen of the five civilized tribes. And I see a fellow freedman in the back of the room there from the Choctaw Nation, Mr. Scholes. Yes, I recognize your face from Facebook. So, um, But there are over 14,000 files of freedmen alone from the five tribes. And the tribes are broken into categories. 
Indians that are documented as by blood, and don't be distracted by that. There are plenty of people who were freedmen who were by blood, but because their parents or grandparents had been enslaved, they were put on the freedman role and put in the freedman category. But the categories are by blood, freedmen, intermarried whites, and newborns and minors, and newborns of all of those categories. There are by blood minors, by blood newborns, by blood freedmen, I'm sorry, uh, uh, minor freedmen and uh, newborn freedmen. Basically what happened, the process began in 1898 and did not end. This allotment of land process did not end until 19, well, they closed the books for, at first in 1907, but they ended it in 1914. And those who didn't get put on the list by 1907 were added to the list for the next seven years, and they were classified as either newborns or minors. So the period of time we're talking about is 1898 to 1914. You're going to find different types of records, enrollment cards, application jackets. They can be very thick or they can be very thin, one page only. Most are in between, the very thick and the very thin. And then the final roles, which is a list of, of names of people who were approved and deemed eligible to receive land allotments. They represent the tribes that are listed at the bottom, Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole, and Creek nations. The cards, the by blood cards, one side, but they're still name rich. The name of the person who was applying, their age, if they had a blood quantum, they put it there if they wanted to record it. They also tell the tribe of the father. They'll tell the name of the father. They also have the name of the mother. So you're getting actually two generations on that card. Well, really three if the person had children. Friedman cards are similar but they are two-sided cards. So you'll see the name of the person who's enrolling. You have the slave owner's name on the front, which guarantees that they had a right to get land because they were citizens of the tribe at that point, and their slaveholder was not some white guy from Tennessee. It was an Indian from the Cherokee Nation. The backside of the Freedman card also contains more information. The name of the father of this particular person, also the name of the mother of that same person, <clears throat> and if known, the name of the slaveholder. And in this case, this person was put on the Freedman roll, but you see the slave owners, Robert Weber over here, you also see the father of this man who was once a slave was also the same man, Robert Weber. So in some cases, the slaveholder was also the father. In the, Cher in the Choctaw Nation, again, it's a double-sided card. So you see the names of the people who are listed on the front of the card and on the back side of the card. You get more information about who the parents were, the parents' slaveholders, and the name of the mother and additional information that is there. Creek Nation. Similar kinds of information. This is a by-blood card, the name of the person, their father and mother also on that card. Creek Nation, you see also 
the fact that you'll find from the Chickasaw Nation, you find the same name-rich documents. Also in the Seminole Nation, these documents are incredibly rich. And if you're just sometimes looking for something interesting to read, it is truly an experience. The freedmen members of the tribe, they are amazing. Also read the footnotes because a lot of times, the lighting just isn't that good, you can see that it'll say this person also appeared on the 1896 roll on page number 419. You'll get a chance to find out their names appeared on earlier rolls. So this is a case where one document leads you to another document as well. And of course, you have Choctaw records, Chickasaw records, Creek Nation records, and Seminole records as well. So these records are extremely rich, and for every card, every card, there is an accompanying packet of interviews. So it's just very, very rich. On fold three, remember I mentioned the Indian collection. When you go and see what the collection are, when you just click on National, um, Native American collection, you'll see these choices. You click on the section that says Dawes Packet, and the tribes will come up. You click on one single tribe, and every single category will come up. And even with Choctaws, you get Mississippi Choctaws as well, and I'll talk about those. Article 14 of the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit, which was signed in 1829, guaranteed that those Choctaws who did not choose to move west had the right to maintain residence in the state of Mississippi. During the time of the Dawes process, it was decided, okay, give them a little bit of land too. Well, thousands of people, hey, you're going to get some land? Trust me. White folks and black folks also play. Yeah, I'm a Choctaw too, yes. And this is an amazing collection. It's even more amazing, in my opinion, than the regular Dawes files. There are 7,000 what are known as MCR files, which stands for Mississippi Choctaw Rejected. The files are incredible. Now, there's one category of people who were actually identified. I think it's about 1,100 of those. And you'll see, these are Mississippi Choctaws. And you'll see, okay, this guy lived in Enterprise, Mississippi, and he was identified, and information that's there um, about his parents, his father and mother, and they were Choctaw, and they were approved. This is where the good stuff comes. This family... From was, and you see it, I mean, can you get any bolder, rejected stamp right in the middle, not a little something over in the corner. Uh, and in case you didn't see that, well, just in case you see refused at the top. But the records themselves never cease to amaze me. How about in the middle of a file, a multiple generation hand-drawn pedigree chart? You find these in file after file after file. You don't even see these in the Dawes records of Oklahoma. I've yet to see one. Have you ever seen one, Mr. Schultz? Never have seen one. I've yet to see one in Oklahoma. These Mississippi files have, have them very frequently, and it's just amazing to see. And upon 
inspection, you'll really see that some of them, I'm trying to see if I can find an example here, some of them, well, you'll see um, the person who was applying, of course, it starts with that person. We've got one, two, three, four, five generations of records that are illustrated on that pedigree chart, which is just absolutely amazing. There's an interview that accompanies the file, and you'll see just all kinds of information. What is your name? John Stanfield, what's your age? Where do you live? Where's your post office? How long have you lived in this town? What's your father's name? I mean, they're getting a lot of good information there. And uh, Through which parent are you claiming Choctaw blood? Through my father. And he's going on and on and on. And, and these questions are truly amazing. But again, I got to emphasize that use all the standard records first. And sometimes they're limited, but uh, realize now the purpose was to put their name on the Dawes roll, but Daw, um, well, the Dawes roll is pretty, pretty large, but a roll, an Indian tribal roll, is not the sole method of identifying an Indian family. And most families, whether they're on the Miller roll or the Dawes roll, most of those families are also on the census. So if they applied here, don't forget to look for them in the census as well to make sure. Now, I do talk about the pitfalls, and I am going to go into more detail about this in my last session. But it is most important. I always go back to that last one at the bottom. This is also in your hand, in your notes. To maintain the integrity of your research and avoid the pitfalls that are there. So um, I'm going to stop at this point and take some questions that some of you may have, and then we'll break certainly for lunch after that and then come back again. But are there any questions that some of you have about these? Yes, ma'am. Have you encountered records that are privately held by the tribe? Have I encountered records that are privately held by the tribe? Uh, no and yes. In general, uh, the records that, are, um, that you see here are all public domain. There are some records that have not yet been digitized. There are also some records that never got scanned that should have been scanned. When the Dawes record was created in 1898, they belonged to the tribe. Then in 1970s, when the tribes were reorganizing and forming their, their current structure, they were required to send all of their records to Washington. They were being microfilmed, and most did. The Creek Nation is probably the most broken record set. All of them never got to Washington. Some are still held there. Some people have said that, oh, yes, we know where they are. Some have said, no, we don't have any more. It is believed that some are still intact. And there's some that were not considered... Um, part of the federal record set that are still in some of the tribal communities as well. So, Some other questions uh, about some of the records. Yes, ma'am. What's a clot on DNA? Uh, and I will mention that in another session too. DNA can be a useful tool for genealogy. A tool. A tool. That's all I say is a tool. DNA is not going to point you to a particular tribe. Um, DNA is not going to 
um, get you admission or gain you admission into any tribe, which is one reason I always emphasize the, uh, the need to separate the two processes. Your genealogy is a methodical process involving a lot of good research. And separate that from tribal enrollment, which can have a political base. But it can be an interesting tool. It has limitations. And it has limitations primarily because you're not going to find large numbers of individuals from any single tribe who have taken DNA tests against which now there's a base population that can say, oh, it looks like you're matching uh, Winnebago or Ojibwe or Abenaki or Wampanoag. There is no test that's going to do that, primarily because you're not going to find large numbers of people who've submitted their DNA to help people find their way back home, so to speak. No, you're not going to find that. But it can be a useful tool. Um, but it's very, very broad. Most DNA tests, even, even the autosomal tests, they're going to reflect something in your deep ancestry, deep meaning 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago or more. Um, some will take, uh, and I've tested with DNA, I've tested with African ancestry, 23andMe, which is autosomal, and uh, family tree DNA, and also the National Genographic. And... Um, it's interesting. It's fun. And, you know, I show people my little profile and all of that. But, and I've never met a cousin that I didn't already know was a cousin. Um, so it's not always going to crack open a case. On the other hand, I know individuals who've taken DNA tests who've been able to solve a mystery, uh, especially for an adoptee and have been able to find relatives, fairly close relatives, because of a DNA testing. But in terms of DNA specifically for Native American, um, you know, you may or may not find some. Um, I know that some people are very, very disappointed. I think there's a group in, in one part of the country that's been claiming Native ancestry for years, and they found out that that non-white ancestry was of African origin, and they're still upset. So, But, um, you know, it's a tool. But it's not necessarily that should make or break your research and should not stop your documentation process. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Well, there's some of the tests were different. Um, the National Genographic Test, which was the first one that I did, which is looking at human migration, that uh, I also did it at the time, which was about seven or eight years ago because it was very inexpensive at the time. That's looking at your deep ancestry, 5,000 years ago, and very deep. But it gave me a haplogroup piece of information, meaning what part of the world a good portion of ancestors came from. And so I learned my haplogroup was L3. And if you pull up haplogroup and type that into Google and type in the various categories, you'll see certain parts of the world generate a certain type of haplogroup. And so that was interesting to see. Um, African ancestry pointed out a certain part in Western Africa on the matrilineal side, strictly my mother's side going up through my mother, her mother, her mother, her mother, her mother, which is a tiny sliver of your ancestry. And that was interesting to see what that revealed. 23andMe is autosomal. And about, uh, it gives you this sort of an overview of your entire genetic makeup, what percentage is sub-Saharan Africa, what percentage is European, what percentage is Native American. 
And so that's interesting to look at as well. Some of the tests are interesting because they do provide you with DNA matches and, and other people who share some um, chromosomes or, or, or you share markers that are similar, and it will tell you that it's predicted that you all are third cousins or fourth cousins or whatever. You can also upload information to a site called GEDmatch if you have taken either family tree, tree DNA, 23andMe, or um, what's the other one? Ancestry. And you can upload it to this one site, and it allows you to compare your data with people who've taken a test that maybe you haven't taken. Maybe you took 23andMe, but somebody else took Ancestry. But if you all are cousins, it'll point that out that you are, and how many generations you are away from that common ancestor. And it's interesting. I mean, I have a lot of matches that we'll never be able to fill, figure it out. And um, primarily because it says we're four or five generations away. And both of us, he, this person has even a larger European um, percentage in their makeup. I have, what, 20% and 6% Native American and the remainder being Sub-Saharan African. But it's a possibility that myself and this other person have an unknown white ancestor. That could be where we're overlapping. But it's still fun to look at and it's still useful. But it's not something that's going to crack the code <laughs> per se, although it can be useful for adoptees who are looking for relatives. Yes? Yeah, well, bullet quantum is, is really strange, <laughs> yeah. But uh, the Dunroll was created um, in the Creek Nation, and it was one of the earlier pre-Dawes rolls as well. And a lot of times on the cards, on one of the cards, you saw something where somebody was on the 1896 roll. Well, in the Creek Nation, you will see a reference to where a person's name was listed on the Dunroll as well. Within each tribe, there were earlier census records from 1866 to 1898. And if they were used, and many of the tribes used the previous role to sort of verify that they've been here all this time. In other words, one of the things that you had to prove to be able to get your land allotment, because keep in mind the Dawes role was created to allot land, to deem who was eligible to receive allotted land. Well, they are looking for continuity. That not You're not just some guy from Texas who heard that there was some land being given out. That, okay, you're here, you're Creek. Oh, well, were you on the Dunroll before that? Uh, oh, you were um, Choctaw. Were you on the 1896 roll? Were you on the 1885 uh, Choctaw census? Uh, were, if you're a Cherokee, were you on the 1880 authenticated Cherokee census? So they're looking for that continuity, which was part of the proof that you had to provide. You do not have the extensive interviews that you have with the Dawes records, for example. You won't have that accompanying the Dunroll. But um, you will find that those roles can be useful. It's a list of names. But sometimes you'll see maybe an ancestor who had passed away by 1898, but you see their name on the earlier role. So I would say, oh, always, if you know that your family came from this one, look at the role that preceded it to see, because you can find um, a previous generation. And blood quantum is crazy. <laughs> it is great. Well, you can even see on the census, you know, 
you know, it's, it's crazy. It's just a look. Uh, how do you measure blood? And blood is politics, of course. And you had some people who had the blood of the slaveholder, but they were told, your blood doesn't count. You're going on the roll with all the other black folks. So it's, that's, that's political. So, yeah, it, it's, it's real, but it's there. So I thought I saw another hand back here someplace. Um, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, there are, right, right. People of different complexions, yeah. So, again, <clears throat> what's an Indian look? <laughs> you know, that, and a lot of us think, well, we're influenced by Hollywood. What is the Hollywood image? You know, and uh, and everybody, all the men didn't look like Burt Reynolds. Remember, he was remember Burt Reynolds from Gunsmoke, where he he was supposed to be half Indian, and um, no, no, you had some who looked more like my dad, and uh, so no, it's it is very very interesting um, to see, and you know that's why particularly I always emphasize, you know, tell the story, follow the trail and document one generation to the one that preceded it. Um, because I, I remember I was in Chicago about three years ago giving a presentation. A lady came, oh, I just want to show you a picture of my great-grandmother. And she showed me a picture, a nice-looking lady. I said, oh, what a pretty lady. Oh, you kind of look like her. I know she was waiting for me to verify something for her. And I just said, a nice-looking lady, which she was. Finally, since I wasn't verifying what she wanted me to hear, but look. Look at her hair. That's a nice hairstyle. I used to wear my hair like that. That's not what she wanted to hear. She wanted me to say, ah, you can tell she's an Indian. I can't tell that she's an Indian. I don't play that what do you look like type of thing. Um, That's a policy that eliminated a whole lot of people, that what do you look like concept. And so, um, you know. That's, you know, it happens still today. And, um, but, you know, when you're telling the story and telling it hopefully correctly, you're not going on looks. And, uh, and the most important thing is why I say incorporate the national story also into that family story. So any other questions? If not, we can break a couple minutes early for lunch then. So I'll see you later. Thank you. We are due back at 2 o'clock.